Good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be back with you all. Uh, and as I was walking to church after a two-week quarantine, as I was walking to church this morning, I kept on feeling like I was doing something wrong when I was walking down the street towards the church. Uh, it is a joy to be back with you all. And uh, I just want to say, first and foremost, thank you so much for your prayers over the last couple of weeks. And, um, and thank you so much for the texts and the phone calls and the letters and uh, even going out and buying us food, because when you're locked in for two weeks, you can't do anything, and the meals that people provided, even our Thanksgiving uh, meal. Just thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for your great generosity to us uh, during the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's, you know, again, just a joy to be back with you. And, you know, when you go through an illness like that, it's just a reminder of what Paul says, that we have this treasure that's in jars of clay. And when we groan in this earthly tent, it's just another reminder that we have a heavenly dwelling place that we have to look forward to, that we will have someday very soon. And so I praise God that, uh, you know, even an illness like this reminds you of the full redemption you have in Jesus Christ, that He has redeemed your soul from sin and hell, and one day he will deliver this mortal body and put and give it immortality. And uh, I just absolutely rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us hope in all circumstances and at all times. If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study in the book of Colossians this morning. This study titled Christ Above All by looking at Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 18, which highlights for us the supremacy and the worth of Jesus Christ. If you recall, the Colossian church was facing some very specific dangers at this time. They were facing some direct assaults against the supremacy of Jesus Christ in their midst. On the one hand, They had people getting up saying that Jesus Christ was good, but you also need to have this supernatural knowledge and experience uh, to be spiritually mature. And then, on the other hand, they had people saying that Jesus Christ was good, but you also need to follow all of these extra-biblical rules and regulations to truly be considered mature in Christ. And these fallacies were wreaking absolute havoc to the unity of the Colossian church by creating two tiers of Christians. And you see that when these heresies are preached even today. So you had some Christians going around saying, well, you know, here are Christians, and then here are the super-Christians, right? The ones who see visions, the ones who speak in tongues, the ones who order their lives in this extremely strict way. And these people were going around saying, oh, all you've got is Christ? Well, then you've got to step it up. If you want the abundant life, if you want a spiritual breakthrough, if you want deliverance, if you want prosperity, if you want healing, then you've got to have this special knowledge. You've got to have this special experience. You've got to have this special faith or this special morality. You've got to move beyond just Christ, and you've got to get what I got. Well, Paul is pretty clear in this letter that people who teach like that, they don't have anything. Anything except 
an inflated vision of their own grandeur. As Paul says later in Colossians 2.18, they're just puffed up without reason by their own sensuous minds. They really do think they're all that and more. (laughs) They're full of hot air. That's what Paul says. Because all you need is Christ, and that's what this letter is about. Christ is everything. Christ is all and in all, as he's going to say later in chapter 3, verse 11. And so, in order to confront the Colossian heresy and reestablish a sense of Christ's supreme worth in the minds and hearts of the Colossian believers, Paul begins his letter here in verse 15 by simply extolling in wondrous phrase after wondrous phrase the supreme matchless worth of Christ. And I just want you to imagine the crackling conviction that would have struck the Colossian church when these truths were first taught all those years ago. Those who had been holding fast in Christ would have been invigorated and strengthened in their faith when these truths were taught. And those people who were proponents and were advocating for lesser things other than Christ would have shrunk away in absolute shame as these words were spoken for the very first time in their midst. That's why I said several weeks ago, several weeks ago, that the truths of Colossians need to be unleashed in the American church today. In Paul's example, we find our approach. How do we respond to an American Christianity that increasingly suggests through claims of special knowledge and mystical experiences and extra-biblical belief systems and priorities that Jesus is not enough? How do we respond? Answer, we exalt Christ. We make him our focus, our priority, our object of desire and worship. We exalt him above all. We declare by our lips and by our lives that Christ is of supreme value and worth. When we do that, there is a purifying effect that takes place, and that's what Paul wanted to see in the Colossian church. When you exalt Christ above all, What happens is the devotion of God's people is secured and the deceptions of Satan's lies are exposed. This is what happens when we exalt Jesus Christ above all. When we come to understand the supreme worth of Christ and come to believe the truth contained in our passage this morning, that Christ is preeminent over the creation, that's in verses 15 through 17, that Christ is preeminent over the church, that's at the beginning of verse 18, and that Christ is preeminent over over the consummation, the fulfillment of all things. This is the truth that transforms. If you remember, as Paul talked about last time in verses 9 through 14, this is the truth that transforms your life, that Christ is preeminent over creation, over the church, and over the consummation of all things. This is everything in your life changes. Everything. In your life changes when you come to realize that you are in him who is above all. So with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Colossians 1, verse 15. Paul records these words from the Holy Spirit. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the word of God, which causes those who fear God to rejoice because we hope in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture that it unveils to us the glories of Christ that are inexpressible. But Father, Your Spirit has revealed to us a vision of Christ's glory. We pray that that vision would be seized upon by every heart and mind here. By your Spirit, Father, I pray that this truth would be planted deep into the hearts and minds of the listeners here today. Father, we are weak, prone to distraction, prone to worshiping lesser things, prone to giving our lives to things that will not matter. And Christ is above all. So give us strength this morning to believe. Give us strength this morning to change. Give us strength this morning to repent and obey and follow Him. Reign over us, Father, we pray. May Christ be preeminent here in this place. Father, give me this morning physical strength to exalt the eternal splendor of Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 19:18 or Luke 9:18, Jesus asked his disciples a very important question. A question that still echoes down through the corridors of history and time to today. Who do the crowds say that I am? If you remember, Jesus' question was met by some confusion. A confusion that is still matched today. If you were to ask the average person in a crowd, who is Jesus? You would be hard-pressed to come up with any comprehensive answer. They know that this name Jesus exists. They have no idea who he is. But the real issue was Jesus' second question that he asked in Luke 9. But who do you say that I am? That's what matters. This is the most essential issue in your life and in our life as a church. Without Christ, you do not have Christianity. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Your answer to that question determines your eternal destiny. 
As God has said in His Word, one day He will judge all the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Who is Jesus? Paul gives us the right answer here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And though it would never come out quite so eloquently from our mouths, our hearts nevertheless must resound with the answer that Paul gives in these verses. Who is Jesus? Paul answers the question in one phrase. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. Now that word icon or image meant something very distinct to the Colossian believers. At a very basic level, you need to know that that word image or icon means picture or image. It was kind of pulled into our English language, right, when on the computer you have icons, right? Little pictures of what the application is. Well, here you have that same idea, but to a much richer extent. Paul is saying here, even at a surface level, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Christ. He is the invisible God made visible in human flesh. That in itself is a powerful statement. But the word icon has a deeper meaning that the Colossians would have immediately recognized. See, when a contract was written up back then in the ancient world, something that happened quite frequently in the trade city of Colossae, the two parties would sign their names at the bottom of the contract. And then immediately under each one of the signatures, there would be put an icon, a full description of the defining characteristics and distinguishing marks of the individual who just signed that contract. So it might say something like this, if a contract was signed by a guy named Flavius, right? Well, Flavius' height is around six feet. He is heavily built with a sizable belly. He has brown eyes and dark curly hair for his head and beard. There's a slight scar that runs down his left cheek. He walks with a slight limp on his right foot, and he speaks with a distinct Palestinian accent and is missing a tooth on the front top of his mouth. Right? That description, that icon was given so that no one could ever say, hey, that wasn't me that signed that. Right? I didn't sign that contract. Because then they could reply, well, let's see. You're six feet tall, heavily built, quite a belly, brown eyes with curly hair. On your head and beard, there's a scar, you're walking with a limp, you speak with an accent, and a tooth is missing. You have all the defining characteristics of Flavius. You are Flavius, even if you try to deny it or not. That's an icon. It is a perfect, full description of someone. So what we see here is that Jesus is the icon of God. He's not just a picture. He is the full picture. He is the full revelation of God, possessing all the divine characteristics of God. He is the icon of God. So think about it. Someone who's God is creator, self-existent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's glorious. He's true. He's loving. He's holy, etc., etc., right? So looking at Christ, you have to ask yourself, does he match the divine icon of God? Is Jesus the perfect description of God? Paul's answer in this passage is overwhelmingly yes, absolutely. Christ is preeminent over the creation, he's preeminent over the church, and he's preeminent over the consummation of all things, history itself. Jesus possesses all the characteristics of God. Jesus is God. That is what Paul is saying when he says he is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus is creator. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's glorious. He's true. He's self-sufficient. He's holy. Jesus, when compared to the divine characteristics, is a perfect match. He bears them all. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is not simply a divine representation of God, as the Jehovah Witnesses would teach. Jesus is the divine manifestation of God. Jesus is God. As John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has made him known. Jesus is the invisible God made fully revealed to men in a form that they can see and know and understand. As 1 John 1, 1 says, that which was from the beginning, it's God, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and touched with our hands, right? This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, that the invisible God was made visible. And you can know that Jesus is God because look at his life. He bears all the characteristics of the divine. He is... As Hebrews 1.3 states, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. For us to ever know what God is like in his fullness, we as humans must look to Jesus. That is why Jesus could say in John 14 verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. There is no difference. Jesus is God. He is God made manifest to us. As 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen where? It's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to men. He is the full divine icon of God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible to men. Jesus is God. And as such, as the visible image of the invisible God, what does that mean concerning Jesus Christ's preeminent value and worth? Paul outlines what that means here in this passage. Because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, that means first that Jesus is preeminent over the creation. That's in verses 15, the end of verse 15, on into verse 17. And this makes sense, right? Jesus is God, and that means he's the most important person in this universe. He is the most important person, subject, and reality. And that's exactly what Jesus is, or what Paul is going to say here in verse 15 into verse 17. Everything is beneath him. Everything is from him. Everything is for him. Everything is after him. And everything is by him. Jesus, as the invisible God made visible, stands preeminent over the creation. First, everything is beneath him. That's at the end of part of verse 15. Look at this. Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now that term firstborn means first in terms of order and position, not first in terms of birth order like we would usually think, right? And there are several reasons for this. First, because of context. Because of context. Paul cannot be saying here that Jesus is a created being Otherwise, he's contradicting the very phrase that he has just used. Paul has just said that Jesus is the image, the icon, the exact descriptive match of the invisible God. Well, Jesus cannot be the icon. He cannot possess all the characteristics of the creator God if he is a creation. 
The only way Jesus can be the icon of God, possessing all the divine characteristics of God, is if he himself is the eternal, self-existent creator. Which is, which Jesus Christ is, as Paul's going to make the make the point in the very next phrase that he uses. So you cannot take one phrase of Scripture and make it stand apart from the phrases that are surrounding it. Paul defines exactly what he means by this phrase. So this term, firstborn, cannot mean first in terms of birth order because of the context. Second, because of the word usage. This word, prototokos in the Greek, is most often used in Scripture as a title of honor and respect. For example, if this was a classroom this morning in the ancient world, and someone said, can you please point out to me who your A-plus student is? Who's the top of the class? I would have someone come up here. I'm not going to say who it is. I I don't even have someone in my mind. I would have them come forward, and I would say, yeah, this is the A-plus student, right? This is the one who's the top of the class. This is the prototokos, the most important one here the firstborn of this class. They were first in terms of honor and respect. You see this usage come out in Psalms 89. If you want to turn there really quick, Psalms 89 is probably the clearest use of the passage, though, or the, of the use of this word, though it's used elsewhere as well. But uh, for the sake of time, Psalms 89, verse 27. In verse 20, uh, God makes it clear that he is speaking to David, his servant. And in verse 27, God says this, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, was David firstborn in terms of birth? No, he's not. He was the youngest, actually. The youngest of his family, as 1 Samuel 17, verse 14 says. And yet God says here, I'm going to make him the firstborn, right? Uh, God's going to say, I'm going to make him the firstborn in terms of honor. That's why he says the highest of the kings of the earth. Not in terms of birth order, but in terms of importance, position, and honor. You see this play out with Jacob and Esau on a practical level. Jacob was the youngest, yet he was received the position of honor. He was treated as the firstborn. You see this with Ephraim. Uh, being chosen, not Manasseh. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is above all. Everything is beneath him. So Paul is saying in powerful descriptive terms here that Jesus, listen to this, is more important, more exalted, more glorious, and more worthy than all of creation put together. Think of that for a moment. Think of how much value and worth our world puts on just a sliver of creation today. Why, just this week I came across in the news of a young man from California who is facing 60 years in jail for performing acts of terrorism in order to stop chickens and Thanksgiving turkeys from being processed for food. He was literally putting his life on the line for the sake of a chicken. Most of us would laugh at that, as I did when I first read the article. But I want you to consider that that young man has shown more devotion for the concerns of a chicken than most of us have ever shown for the concerns of Christ our whole life long. He who is not merely a peace of the creation, but he who is preeminent over all of it. 
Paul recognized that the greatest need of the Colossian church and our greatest need is to see Christ and to know him as more highly prized than we do. To believe with a fiery conviction in our hearts that Jesus is more important, more exalted, more glorious, and more worthy than all of creation put together. To put it another way, Christ eclipses in importance every one of your concerns. He eclipses in importance every one of your dreams. Christ eclipses in importance every one of your desires. As Abraham Kuyper, the reformed pastor and one-time prime minister of the Netherlands wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine! There is not a section of your life that Christ does not claim as his own. There is not a section of your life that is not to be lived for his honor and for his glory above all. He is sovereign over all. So everyone here today, please listen to me. You need to understand something very important. Whether you buy into this whole idea of Christianity or not, I nevertheless tell you the truth. This morning... You are Christ's. The question is, are you rebelling against Him in sin and unbelief? Or are you submitting to Him as the Lord that He is? This is at the heart of salvation. As Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you must confess Jesus is Lord. He is the firstborn of all creation, the one who possesses as heir and owner all things. As Hebrews 1-2 states, the Son has been appointed as heir of all things. He is the heir because he is the firstborn. Now, if you want to see Jesus as the Prototokos, uh, receive his inheritance, Write down Revelation chapter 5 and read it later today where Jesus is described as taking the title deed of the universe from the one who is seated on the throne in heaven and he takes the scroll and he breaks its seal and he claims the universe as his own and you say why the answer is given in Revelation 5 because he is worthy. He is the prototokos, the firstborn. He is the worthy and preeminent one, supreme over all creation. Everything is is beneath him. Second, everything is from him. It's at the beginning of verse 16 where it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Don't worry, we'll finish with this verse. Verse 16, notice the previous phrase is divine for us here, right? Jesus is not a simple creation. He is the supreme creator. Hebrews 1-2 says that the world was created through Christ, and here God steps it up a notch in the book of Colossians. All things were created by Christ. All things in heaven and on earth. As 1 John 1-3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that is made. All things find their source in Christ. He is the first cause of all things in existence. No matter how far you go in creation, heaven or earth, no matter how deep you go into creation, visible or invisible, 
no matter how wide or how deep you're searching in this universe, every single thing you will ever find was brought into being by the omnipotent, almighty, creating hand of Jesus Christ himself. But look at the examples that Paul gives here. This is when conviction happens, right? Look at the examples that Paul gives here of those things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, that Christ created. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, those examples that Paul gave could refer to something very specific or they could refer to something very general. If they're referring to something very specific, Paul is probably referring to angelic order and authority that exists in the spiritual realm. Even the heavenly places are organized. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And so this is similar to what Paul says over in Ephesians 1.21 when Paul says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and he is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, Paul was saying that Jesus is above even the highest of angelic orders. This was a very important lesson for the Colossian church to believe and to learn because Colossians 2.18 tells us later that the heretics were going around saying that these believers needed to pay homage to and worship even angels. When you study their teachings, you find out that they were saying things like, you've got to worry about all these angelic orders and authorities. You've got to know all of their names, resist some, and respect others in order for your prayers to be heard. You say, well, that doesn't happen today. Yeah, I know. Something a lot worse happens today. You know what we do today? Back then, it was you need to pay homage to angels and know their names for your prayers to be heard. Today, for millions of Americans, you need to pay homage to saints for your prayers to be heard. Paul says, no, you do not need to worry about knowing the secret knowledge of angels' names or anyone else's names. You don't need to worry about worshiping them or giving honor to them or anyone else in all of creation because there is a name that is above every name. His name is Jesus. He is above all. It is at his name that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is the name that you must know and trust in for your prayers to be heard. He's the one you must worship and adore alone. No one else. No other human being. No angel. No other created entity. You must worship the creator. The visible image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ himself. That is what Paul, that's if Paul is referring to something very specific with his words. But it's also possible here that Paul is referring to something very general with his words as well. And that is this. No matter what authority you are thinking of this morning, that authority comes from Christ. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether monarchies or republics or kings or presidents, whether parents or pastors or employers or governors, whether good or bad, helpful or harmful, every institution of authority in heaven and on earth is created by Christ Himself. Would you speak evil 
of the authority which God has ordained. For by Him all things were created. All things. This is critical to remember because Paul is going to tell us later in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that one of the most essential Christian virtues is meekness. That is, having power, having authority, having freedom, and yet putting all of that, submitting all of that under the control and authority of God Himself. That's meekness. It is having power, having freedom, having authority, and yet submitting all of that and putting all of that under the control of God. So in chapters 3 through 4, Paul is going to tell wives to submit to their God given husbands, husbands to sacrificially love their God given wives. He's going to tell children to obey in everything their God-given parents. He's going to encourage their God... uh, He's going to to tell the parents to encourage their God-given children. He's going to tell slaves to obey in everything their God-given masters. And he's going to tell masters to be fully just and fair to their God-given slaves. In short... Paul is going to tell every believer to show radical meekness and submission to every one of their God-given authorities. Listen, a husband and a wife, a child and a worker, a master, a believer can only do that if he truly believes deep down in his heart that every earthly authority that stands over him comes directly from his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. And indeed it does. That's why you obey your parents. Because those parents were given to you by God. That's why you obey your employer. Because your employer was put over you by God. That's why you obey your government. Because your government was given to you by God. That's why you obey every authority put over you. Even in the church, I should probably mention that, the other sphere. Your pastors and elders, they were given to you by God. That is why Scripture has these commands. Because these authorities do not exist in a bubble all by themselves. They exist beneath the sovereignty of Christ's Lordship. For all things were created by Him, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. Every earthly authority has been given to us by Christ. And by submitting to them, we show the world that Christ is above them. Romans 13.1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except from God, and those that have been given have been ordained by Him. When believing wives submit to their husbands, or children submit to their parents, or workers to their employers, or citizens to their government, those believers are showing the world that everything is from Him. Everything is from Christ. Everything is beneath Him. Everything is from Him. And we'll finish today with this final point as the conclusion of this message. Everything is For Christ. Everything. All things were created through Him and for Him. Contrary to popular thought, this world is not a collection of random occurrences, nor is it a spinning top that began with some purpose and now it's wobbling quickly into chaos. No, this world is a freight train headed on the tracks towards one inevitable destination. Glory to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. As Revelation 5.13 says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb 
be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. For all things were created through Christ, and therefore all things exist for Him. Everything in all of creation has been created for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, you included. You included. Listen to me. You were made to worship Jesus. You were made to worship Jesus. And apart from that purpose, you will be miserable your whole life and eternity long. You were made to worship Jesus, the Son of glory, the King of glory. This is why you were created and exist. You see, I was an art minor for two years while in college when I didn't know what I was doing. And I totally get what Paul is saying here. Whenever you put your brush to the, to the uh, canvas, whenever you begin to mold the clay or tighten the screws or press the shutter button, you're doing that for a reason in that moment. You're doing it for a purpose. You're creating something with a purpose in mind to accomplish something, to communicate something. Ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what the God of this universe and that is exactly what Christ himself has done. He has created all things in this universe for a purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ has created you for a purpose. The question is, are you fulfilling the purpose for your existence or not? Are you worshiping the Son, the King of glory? As Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God. This is God's purpose for your life. That you believe in Him whom God has sent. Submit your life in humble faith and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it this morning, really briefly as I close. Christ created the heavens, and they give Him glory. Psalms 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament above showeth His handiwork. Christ created the heavens, they give Him glory. Christ created the earth, and they give Him glory as well. It gives Him glory. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His what? Glory. And Isaiah saw Christ's glory. Christ created the heavens, and the heavens glorify Him. Christ created the earth, and the earth glorifies Him. Christ created you, and you must glorify Him as well. This is what gives your life significance. Listen. If there is one spiritual lesson that the Lord has taught me over the last six years, it's this, over and over again. It's not how long you live. It's not how much you accomplish. It's not how much you experience. It's how much you glorify Jesus with your life. Whether you live 100 years on this earth, or whether you never live long enough to see a single day on this earth, what gives your life significance and worth is how much you magnify and exalt and are used by God to draw others' eyes towards Jesus. You were made to worship. So worship Him. As Colossians 2.17 will say later, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Live your life in the worship of Jesus. For He is of supreme worth, preeminent over all of creation. 
all of our concerns, all of our dreams, all of our desires. We ought to give everything to Him because everything is beneath Him. Everything is from Him and everything is for Him. We are in Him who is above all. And we're not even finished yet. We'll finish the rest of this passage next week. But for now, this is the Word of God from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he towers above it all. Above our dreams. Above our ambitions. Above every name that is named. Above every splendor in the heavens or on earth or under the earth. Christ towers above it all as the one of supreme value and worth. As we live in a world that devotes themselves their whole life to the concerns of a piece of creation. Father, help us to show the world the supreme worth of Christ by devoting ourselves to Him. By giving Him everything. Every concern. Every dream. Every desire. And lay it at His feet. Father, whatever You ask us to do this morning, whatever You have prompted in each and every individual's heart this morning, Pray that they would bow the knee to the name of Jesus. Father, if there is someone that has not trusted in Him for salvation, may they recognize that Christ alone is the one who has saving sovereignty over their lives. For the rest of us, may we give our lives to Him as the only one who is worthy of every moment and every act of obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.